Good morning to everybody. Um, I don't know if you read the service note that was describing the lessons and the carols that we celebrated today, but it said, um, celebrates the scripture in dash five readings from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament in dash. And I thought that's just about the right proportion. <laughs> I like that. Five from the old, one from the new. So that's, that, that gets it just about right. And so, yeah, and I, joking. I like the New Testament. It's great. Um, you mind if I, in this season of repentance, I, I uh, came across a prayer this morning. I thought I'd, I'd open us with this prayer out of, um, you all know this Valley of Vision um, Puritan prayers. Are you, all, are you all familiar with this? Yeah. Um, so here's one on a re- continual repentance. I thought this would be a good way to enter into our discussion today. And I didn't plan on this. I have to say, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know, um, frankly, I didn't know it was lessons and carols, so I showed up this morning. Um, this shows how invested I am in looking at the website in advance. Um, but uh, so I didn't, I didn't plan on this. But we're 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 in Isaiah today, so it kind of will work out well. Um, but here here we go. O God of grace, Thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute, and hast imputed His righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I'm still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I'm always standing clothed in filthy garments and by grace am always receiving change of raiment, for you do always justify the ungodly. I'm always going into the far country. I'm always returning home as a prodigal. I'm always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning you let me wear it. Every evening you return in it. I go out to the day's work in it, be married in it, be wound in death in it, stand before the great white throne in it, enter heaven and it shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. Amen. That's a good word, isn't it? Uh, Valley of Vision. This is a collection of Puritan prayers. Um, all good fundamentalist homes had one of these growing up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, anyhow, uh, that was a little joke for my mom and dad. They're here. Um, all right. So I, again, I didn't plan on this, but I thought we'd go to Isaiah. Again, a larger sort of view of what we're doing in these four weeks. Um, there's no real rhyme or reason uh, to the selections that we're dealing with in these Old Testament narratives that are Advent in nature. But if you remember last week, we sort of framed um, our in- entry into the whole discussion around 
the character of the Old Testament itself as Advent-like. In other words, it's not um, hard to find texts in the Old Testament that are Advent in nature. And what do I mean by that? In the sense that they're yearning and longing for something to be made good on a promise from God that had already been given. That's the, that's the world in which we live as Christians. Uh, and, and theological terms are bandied about on this. Something like we live in the tension. You know, you'll hear this a lot in the seminary context. I hear it all the time. Uh, just, just last Tuesday from our student preacher. We live in the tension between the already and the not yet. Is that language that you've all heard before? Probably a lot. But what do we mean about that tension of the already and the not yet? We live in the reality that God's kingdom has been made manifest. It's been brought among us um, already. You know, This is what we read, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead. It's by far the most important theological reflection on the resurrection probably in the Bible. They're right in 1 Corinthians 15. Then we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul goes on to say, and if we don't believe that Jesus is really resurrected from the dead, then we are of all people most miserable. Um, the thing that I, the way in which I gloss that in, in the Genelette paraphrase is, if Jesus isn't really raised from the dead, um, then we're going to Vegas next weekend. You know, church is off. Um, why? Because it doesn't, our, our faith is now, I mean, being a Christian is like being a member of the country club or the YMCA or university community or whatever. Kind of, it's, it's nothing distinct about it from any other social human organization. I mean, what makes the Christian faith the Christian faith is that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and we believe in it bodily. We believe that it's real and that that's already happened. Um, I, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned this illustration before, so forgive me for repeating it, but uh, we, we were sitting, as a graduate student at St. Andrews, we were sitting around a table, and they had just found the James Ossuary. I don't know if you remember, it's about 2001. Two, no, no, it was more like 2002, 2003. Did you remember this? It was a big splash, right? They, they found the ossuary that apparently held the bones of James, the brother of Jesus. It actually had it in Aramaic there on the side. And, and scholars from all over the world um, really believed that it was true. They thought it was authentic for various reasons. Even Richard Balkum, who was the sort of you know premier New Testament scholar at the university I was attending there in Scotland, um, believed that it was true. Subsequently, by the way, it came out to be a fake. Um, but at the time, everybody was all abuzz about it. And so we were sitting around a table, and he, uh, Professor Balkum, who's a very evangelically minded sort of Bible scholar, had handed around a, a, a handout and was talking about this ossuary, and, and in an aside comment, he said, and it's quite likely, because he's British accent, right? it's quite likely that these that this ossuary actually contains the bones of Jesus. And he stopped. I'll never, I'll never forget the look. He stopped. He's like, oh, wait. Those are the bones we don't want to find. <laughs> not, not the bones of Jesus. These are the, bo- the bones of James. Um, this happened a few years ago on TV on a live debate. Uh, that happened after, um, and I think this was in the season of Lent, and apparently one of these archaeologists had discovered the family Jesus tomb. And so the, the family burial plot where apparently Jesus and his family had been buried. Of course, this is, you know, nutso. But um, he thought it was the case. And after after the, the big History Channel um, uh, documentary on this, uh, wisely, I think the Discovery Channel hosted a live debate 
moderated by Ted Koppel. He was brilliant at this. Uh, moderated by Ted Koppel with the two people who had done um, the, 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 the documentary and then three detractors on the other side. And you had a Roman Catholic priest on the other side. You had William Deaver, who's a pretty big name Bible archaeologist who is not a confessing Christian. He's on the other side. He, by the way, called it, um, this is not for mix, for us here, but he, he called it archaeoporn. That was what he said. This is, this is not, this is bad stuff. Um, and then, and then you had an evangelical fellow named Daryl Bach, or Block, I think, who teaches at Dallas Seminary. And uh, in the middle of the exchange, the Catholic priest said something to the effect of, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if we find Jesus' spleen, which I don't know why he said that, that's an impossibility, but if we found Jesus' spleen, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Now, like, I saw, um, the evangelical uh, fellow who was on their block, he, he just, this is live, he's starting to squirm, you know, he just can't sit still. And, and very kindly he says, actually, you know, if we find the spleen or the bones of Jesus, that's bad news, you know, because we believe that Jesus really um, did rise bodily from the dead, that, that matters. And so when Paul, if he were from 1 Corinthians 15, if he were to walk in and we were to ask him, tell us when will the age of the resurrection of the dead be among us? His answer would be, you're in it right now. Um, Jesus Christ is raised. That's the first fruits of the resurrection. That's the already character of the kingdom of God that's broken into our midst. And we believe that that's true. I mean, we believe that when Jesus dies and he raises again, that he has set off the chain reaction that all things now are being made new. We believe that to be the case. Yet at the same time, and this is the truth, right? We also know that Jesus is painfully absent. You know, in His manifest presence and His promise to be with us by His Spirit and the gift of word and sacrament that we celebrate here together in community week in and week out, we know that Jesus makes Himself present to us in real and manifest ways in word and sacrament and we feed and we feast on Him there but fully recognizing as we feed and we feast that this cannot be all of it. In other words, the table and preaching are eschatologically loaded um, facets of the Christian existence. What do I mean by that? All of them indicate to us when we eat and drink and hear the Word of God presented to us, all of them indicate that there must be more. That there's, there's a hope for the future that all this will be fulfilled in a way that um, right now is, in Paul's language, through a glass darkly. So we believe already, yes, but we also believe um, not yet. And that is why I do like the season of Advent. The season of Advent taps into that particular dynamic of already, yes, Jesus, you have come, and we're waiting for you to come. Um, we live in that particular tension. So with that in mind, last week we did Abraham. I don't even remember how far we got with Abraham, but he's done now. Um, and he, he was in Advent. Now I wanted to do Isaiah chapter 6 and, and sort of frame this and the, and the larger movement of Isaiah itself um, and see uh, some of the themes that emerge here. Okay, So if you have Bibles or phones, you can look at Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm really trying to rush toward the last part of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. So that's where we're trying to go. Um, you, you know the scene. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne. He's high and he's lifted up. I'd love to talk about this, but those... That particular collocation there, high and lifted up, is only predicated on God in the book of Isaiah. No one else is high and lifted up, only God. The train of his robe fills the temple. Um, it's just the, the, I guess the best way to kind of think of it is, it's just the hem of his robe. 
Uh, it's just the bottom rung of his robe that's filling the whole of the temple. I mean, you're getting a sense of the of the magnanimous and the massive character of God as he sits on the throne. Above him stood the seraphim. You know, each had six wings. Uh, they, two, they covered the face. Two, they covered the feet. Two, they flew. Um, and seraphim, again, we won't chase this too far, but th- these are serpentine creatures. Um, th- these aren't... Um, the, the, you know those pictures of the angels with the little babies? What are those Getty angels? Is that what those are? Whatever. If you had that picture of, of, no. These aren't little cute little babies. These are, these are flying snakes. Right? I, I don't know how to say it. Um, so, so later on, when the flying snake comes with a live, live coal and a tong heading to touch Isaiah's lips, that's a really bad moment. For Isaiah, I think. That would be for us too. Um, so here the, the, the seraphim are crying out to one another. And what are they saying? They're, they're, they're talking about the preeminence and the uniqueness of God. He's holy. And He's holy three times over. Um, he's unique. His, his character is not to be measured by anything that we think of on the basis of our normal experiences with the created world. And we have to talk that way about God. You realize that, right? We don't, we don't have any other way to talk about God than by the use of metaphor and language that's borrowed from our normal lived experiences as we engage trees and mountains and rivers and hear words and verbs. And that. We, don't, we don't have any other way to think or talk about God other than the created world in which we have. But the best of the theologians from the Christian tradition have always told us, but do be mindful that your language about God is always analogical. Um, it's there, there's it's it's an analog. There's a relationship between the, our words and God, but it's a relationship that does not exhaust God's being, and in fact, only goes so far, so much so that God's knowledge of Himself is not exactly the same as our knowledge of Him. I mean, there's a He is holy. He He is distinct. He's completely other. He's not bound by the frame of our own existence and our own experience. He is holy. And when you see Him in His holiness is what you see here, and the whole earth is the fullness of His glory. It's the representation of His weight, of His, of His majesty. And when, when they're saying this, then what happens in all kinds of theophanies in the Old Testament, the world begins to react. Uh, the foundations begin to shake. Of uh, the house, I don't know what, I mean, this is, this is an awful moment, I would think. The house was filled with smoke. I mean, this is, this is a, this is a moment. And look at what Isaiah says. He says, woe is me. Right? Because I'm lost. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Because I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. I've seen Adonai on His throne. I've seen the Lord of hosts. I've seen Him. So, you know, obviously here Isaiah responds the way in which one would expect anyone to respond with that kind of unmediated encounter with the God, with God Himself sitting on His throne. He realizes, I've just seen the Lord and my life's over. This, this is a before and after moment. This is going to shape and frame the entirety of my existence. Well, it does. So then one of the seraphim kind of flies over, and you know this story, but he has a burning coal, and he's taking it from the altar, and he, and he touched his mouth, which 
you know, that, I don't think instinctually we would have written the narrative that way, especially with our kind of evangelical sensibilities. I mean, when we recognize that we've seen the King, we've seen the Lord in an unfettered way that both exposes His glory, His beauty, His holiness, His otherness, we recognize then our sinfulness, our lowliness in the light of that majesty. When you behold it, so I think we would say things like, and my heart needs to be clean. I mean, we would think that he'd want to come down and put a coal on our hearts to make atonement at that particular place, our inner person. But And that's true. But this particular moment for Isaiah is unique to his own calling as a prophet. In other words, it's his mouth that has to be clean, cleansed and atoned for because it's his mouth where the, his particular vocational calling and the way in which God is about to send him out into the world, you're going to be a mouthpiece for me, and that's the point that I need to cleanse you, Isaiah, before you go out and do this work. So here he comes, and he touches him on the mouth, and and uh, he says, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. I'd love to talk about this, again, I won't press into it, but there are multiple ways in the Old Testament by or means by which God atones and forgives sins. And we obviously know the sacrificial system is a means by which God does that in the Old Testament. But you know what? There's often a means that we don't, I don't think, talk about as much from an Old Testament perspective. It's forgiveness by divine fiat. Right here. It's God saying, hey, you're forgiven. Um, this, this is an act of my own. There's no means to this. This is an act of my own goodness and graciousness and kindness to you. I declare you forgiven. That's what's happening here. Executive order. Executive order. Exactly. That's right. So, and you know the rest of the scene. After this all happens, he hears God talking. We heard this from the sermon this morning. He says, go to this people. And then, um, and he says, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, I will do this. I'll go. And then we hear something that must have been a heavy blow to Isaiah. And this is why I want the Advent side to kind of emerge. So he tells Isaiah, all right, you're going to go for me. And this is what you're going to do for me. Go and say to this people, verse 9, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and they turn, and they are healed. I'm sure that must have come as a shock, I would imagine, to Isaiah. In other words, this whole ritual of atonement that happened by the cleansing of his lips, this whole encounter that Isaiah has with with Adonai sitting on a throne, uh, comes forth and climaxes in this moment. Now, I've set you apart. I've called you to be my voice, my my word to the people. And this is what my word's going to do right now in this moment of my interaction and my relationship with my people. This is what's going to happen. My word's going to condemn them. My word is going to make them blind. My word is going to make their hearts dull and insensitive to the things of my teaching. And you're going to be the means by which I do that. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a horrible thing. I mean, you know, and I, I, I talk for a living, you know, to the point sometimes I get tired of hearing my own voice. Um, but you know, I, I do talk and preach and I teach and, 
And, um, and, and I, I know, I mean, anyone who does what I do for a living or is a clergy person, or, I mean, they, they want to know that their, their words and the, the, their ministry and the, their study is having a, you know, a positive impact on people's lives. Um, you know, we might act all, you know, we don't really need to be affirmed and we do this because God's called us, but, you know, we, we all, it means a lot when someone says, that really meant a lot or da 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 da, and then, you know, hopefully it goes in one ear and out the other, but it means a lot in the moment. Here's what Isaiah is told right here. You're, you're going to get none of that. Matter of fact, the, the success of your ministry is going to be measured by its failure. That, that's, that's how it's going to go. And you're going to go out there and you think you're going to get affirmed. not going to get affirmed at all. Matter of fact, your words are going to have the opposite effect of what you would hope for. Repentance and renewal. No, this is a time of judgment. This is an advent time for Isaiah. And what does Isaiah say? This is, again, an Advent question, isn't it? Well, how long, O Lord? All right. Isn't that an Advent question? How long are we going to have to, am I going to have to do this? How long is the ministry that you're giving me now in this new moment of commissioning, how long is it going to be this kind of ministry of condemnation, blindness, and deafness? Oh, the answer is not a good one. Until the cities lie waste without any inhabitants. Until the houses don't have any people. Until the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes the people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, like a tree whose stump remains when it is felled. So how long are you going to have to do this? Until this massive tree of Israel and Judah. We're in the 7th century here, so this is even before the northern kingdom has been destroyed. Until this massive tree of Israel and Judah, renowned throughout all the Mesopotamian world, until this massive tree is no longer this massive tree, but is a cut-down oak whose stump is sticking out in the Middle Eastern desert. That's how long you're going to do this. It's a scene of total destruction. And of course, we know in time, I was reading last night as I was watching Clemson play, the history of the ancient Near East, and kind of thinking through some of these things. And you know, it's, it's fascinating. Sargon, Ashurbanipal, all these Neo-Assyrian kings come through and they do it. I mean, they cut them down. Then in time, Nebuchadnezzar, Nabopolassar, they come and they do it too. In other words, this cut, cutting down of Israel is, of course, a metaphor here, but it's a metaphor whose reality is rooted in their really awful history as you move from the 8th into the 7th into the 6th century of their existence. Until they're like a tree that's cut down. And then, there's this last little phrase this phrase is so weird, right, at the end of Isaiah 6.13, that many critical scholars, matter of fact, I would say most critical scholars, make an argument that Isaiah 6.13 verse B, part B, was a later edition that some scribe came through later and fixed Isaiah here because it was so stinking depressing. That's the kind of thing. But this is too depressing. Um, so we need to add just a little pepper of hope here. 
um, I was reading a commentary this morning on this, and he actually, and this is a critical commentator, he actually says that's not the case. He thinks Isaiah 6, 13b is integral to the argument that's being made right here. And what is it? Holy seed is its stump. And in the Hebrew, I mean, you got all this stuff going on here, right? Isaiah 6, this is massive with a lot of language, a lot of imagery, a lot of metaphors going on in Isaiah chapter 6. And it ends, we have lots of words here. My English translation is, holy seed is its stump. I've got six words. In the Hebrew text, it's Zerah, Kadosh, Metzavtah. Three words. Holy seed, its stump. And you go, well... Thanks a lot, Isaiah. What in the world does that mean? And the answer is, we're not sure what it means until later. Why? Well, you heard it this morning in the readings. Look at Isaiah chapter 10. So what's the point? Here you have a stump of a tree that's cut down. It's the destruction of Israel and Judah. And yet there's this promise at the end saying, but holy seed is its stump. In other words, that stump that you see cut down, that, that remnant of a tree that was once there that's no longer there, it's just a flat stump. Well, there's something bubbling under the surface. Um, there's holy seed that's still present within that cut down tree. In other words, God's word of judgment's not His final word. It's, 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 a, it's not a cul-de-sac. It's an off-ramp. <laughs> Onto something more um, in God's economy. And what's the more? The more is holy seed is its stump. Now look how Isaiah develops in Isaiah chapter 10. The end of Isaiah 10, Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. This is one of the images that we have of God in the Old Testament, by the way. At least, especially in Isaiah. He's the great tree feller. I mean, think of like, you know, God Himself with... Um, you know, a, a red uh, logger's hat on and a big axe. And I mean, this is God. He's going to come. He's going to start chopping things down. The great and height will be hewn down. Why? Well, because we saw back in Isaiah chapter 6 that only God Himself is great in height. Whenever people try to make themselves great in height, ask the people of the Tower of Babel. He tends to cut things down. He's doing it here. And the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one, Lebanon being a reference here to the trees of Lebanon, cedar. So here God comes in and He cuts them down. It sounds very much like the end of Isaiah chapter 6. And then look, chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. In other words, here's this stump, here's this cut down tree. We've already been prepared for it at the end of Isaiah 6, and yet... It's as if Isaiah can't help himself. We can't, I can't leave you just with a cut down tree. There's, there's something bubbling. There's a, there's a shoot, uh, that comes forth, a little branch that comes forth to say that, that cut down tree actually still has within it the potential for life. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You want to do a fun Bible study? Here's a fun Bible study for you. Follow the tree imagery in the book of Isaiah. It's fascinating. Because the tree imagery in the book of Isaiah um, is never used positively. Trees are getting cut down left and right. 
And there's hope that sort of emerges from these cut down trees, but by and large, the tree imagery in Isaiah functions for two reasons. The first function of the tree imagery is frankly to remind Israel of her idolatry. You don't have to read far in the minor prophets, Hosea, Amos, and you'll begin to see that a lot of the idolatrous practices that occurred in ancient Israel and ancient Judah took place in groves of trees. There was something about uh, prostitution, temple prostitution, cult prostitution, syncretistic worshiping practices. There was something about tree groves where that happened. Read Macbeth, right? I mean, you know about this, okay? Now, so trees have something going on with them, and they do in the Old Testament. And here God is saying, number one, the tree imagery is to remind you of your idolatry. But number two, it's also to remind you of your arrogance, because only I'm high and exalted. And when you place yourself under me in my exaltation and my my being made high, then you are safe. That's the refuge of my wing. You've got to come under. But when you don't come under, when you stand independent and apart, now you're your own tree in competition with my tree and you're going to have to get cut down. So the tree imagery is doing a lot in the book of Isaiah. But there's one place where the tree imagery is ultimately positive. And I'll do this for two minutes and then we'll be done. And it's Isaiah 61, which happens to be one of the few Old Testament texts that we actually have Jesus preaching on. Here it is. Before, in Isaiah 1-39, to all we had was judgment. All we had was a cut-down tree with some sprouts trying to break their way through. Proleptic hope for the future there. But now on the far side of redemption... Listen to the language here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. By the way, you could do a study on this. The language here is very similar to Isaiah chapter 11. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And I'm getting a little geeky here with the language, but I think this is not to bind up the brokenhearted per se as it is to open the eyes of the blind. Remember what Isaiah was doing? Isaiah was meant to blind them with his words, but now, in this moment, eyes are being made open to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort everyone who mourns, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called, you see this? Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that He might be glorified. That cut down tree that was just pressing forth with the holy seed, namely God's promised Messiah, the servant who would redeem His people. Now on the far side of this, with the announcement of the year of God's favor. This is no longer the time of judgment. God's put His axe away. This is the time of mercy. Judgment has served its purpose. And what do we see? We don't see the tree anymore indicating idolatry and arrogance. We see the right kind of tree that God always wanted. A tree of righteousness. Full-grown oaks. And why are they full-grown oaks? Because they've experienced the year of the Lord's favor and His promise, and they have experienced the forgiveness and the opening of their eyes that were made blind in the first part of Isaiah, and now they're made open because of the announcement of the Spirit of God in our midst. 
Isaiah is an Advent book, right? Isaiah, in, the, in its own redemptive and dramatic movement, takes you from before the already to the already, plops you in the middle port, and look, lets you look to the future of God's future fulfillment of His promises made to us in Jesus. Oaks of righteousness. So, Lord, thank you for a book like Isaiah. It's just littered with sort of Advent language. And, um, Lord, for those of us who feel like we're not even close to resembling an oak, <laughs> we're, um, we're bruised reeds on the side of a riverbank. But you tell us elsewhere in Isaiah that the kindness of our servant is one who doesn't stamp down a bruised reed. You don't blow out flickering flames, but you shepherd us in gentleness. And in this season of Advent, Lord, we need a gentle shepherd, knowing that our status as oaks of righteousness only comes, Lord, because we have found ourselves in you, Jesus, the one who's come into the world to redeem it and to make it new. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.